Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? Good? All right. For those of you who don't know me, which I believe everyone does right now, <laughs> my name is Nick. I'm a pastor here at Dwell. And it's great to see you guys again and be back with you after not being here last week. We were on a, a Mexican Riviera cruise, my family and my in-laws, and it was very beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I, I don't know why I deserve applause for that, but thank you. It was great. It was a great time. Really got some great rest in. So I am well rested and ready to preach and share a message with you guys this morning. So let's go ahead and, and dive into it this morning. A show of hands, I've already kind of pulled some people, but it seems like no one has. Has anyone here been on a cruise? Anyone? We got a few. All right, very few. But uh, for us, it was our first. And what was probably one of the most interesting things for me was how drastically different the experience can be from, from one person to the next. And one of my favorite uh, ex examples of this, there, there's, well, first of all, there's a few constants, right? Like everyone gets on, on the ship and either has too much to drink or you feel like you had too much to drink because of the swaying of the ship. That's one constant. And then the other constant is that you probably get lost on the ship at some point or another and try and find your way back to your room or like the dining hall or the pool. And then, of course, the most important one is you're all heading in the same destination, have the same route. You can't go swim in the ocean and hop back on or you're, on, you're stuck on the ship. You have no option, nowhere to go. It doesn't matter how crazy you get or uh, anything. So those are the constants. But uh, for us, I think there there's... Very, it looked very different for us having Asher, right? Like from maybe an older couple who's just there on their own. Uh, one person experience can be drastically different. My favorite example was when we participated in a Dr. Seuss parade. So for, for us, really, it wasn't about Asher, at least for Sarah and her mom. It was just an excuse to be able to participate in a parade with Dr. Seuss, with the cat in the hat, Sam, I am, thing one and thing two. So this parade was great. It was like a bunch of little kids, and it was a beautiful scene. Uh, the route went right through the casino, which if you're not familiar with cruise ship casinos, it's the smoking zone. <laughs> so we had a very special moment where we had this 100-foot-long line of anywhere from babies to 10-year-olds marching through, chanting some sort of cat-in-the-hat rhyme. And then we have next to us, juxtaposed to that, some 59-year-old named Tom from Phoenix just, you know, gambling away and, and just having the time of his life smoking and, and playing slots. So <laughs> that's just one example of how drastically different the experience can be on the cruise. And I think for us, we can be in different seasons and circumstances in our lives as Christians. Our, our journeys sometimes look different, but the beauty of our faith is that we're all heading in the same destination, and that's eternity with Jesus. And no matter how different our, our experiences might look uh, from one person to the next, no matter where we end up on this boat we call life on earth, and how different our giftings may be. One thing that's always true to all of us is that as Christians, we're either growing or we're dying in our faith. We're either growing or dying as people of faith. For a long time now, one of the biggest complaints that I feel like you hear uh, from all kinds of people, from people in the church, from people outside of the church, is that one of the biggest problems with Christians and the church is that people are Christian by name, but not genuinely living out their faith. 
not genuinely living out a life that resembles following Jesus. So maybe you've thought that before. Maybe you've even struggled with that yourself or seen others struggle with that. Our society in general, I think, is obsessed with personal growth. I think it's fair to say that we love the Enneagram or or all kinds of different things that tell us about ourselves and how we can grow. Self-help books are popular. All kinds of things are out there, resources to help us grow. So while the problem can be a lack of desire, I think it's more often where we put our hope for that desire, what kind of motives we put that hope in. So the question that I want to seek to answer today is what is an ideal mark of spiritual maturity in the Christian life? What are we aiming towards in order for us to keep growing and not be dying in our faith? You might have heard it called spiritual atrophy, like when you work out. I know we got someone in the back there who works out quite a bit. And I tried working out for a little bit a couple weeks before the cruise just so for Sarah, I don't know, I could have something, um, some sort of thing. Going. And then we get to the cruise, and I get muscle, you know, atrophy, because we get to the cruise. There's a gym, but, like, there's also an ice cream machine, so um, that's where I ended up a lot of times. But anyway, spiritual atrophy, like the idea of if we're not doing, putting in the effort, if we're not trying to progress forward, then really what's happening is we're, we're dying in our faith. So to answer that first question simply, what's, what's the mark of spiritual maturity? I don't think there really is a point where we can say that I've arrived. I'm spiritually mature. The Bible doesn't speak in terms of an ideal level of spiritual maturity. It doesn't tell us that we've ever reached it. We can't attain some perfect level of holiness. So instead, the Bible speaks of minimal standards that might be attained, followed by a lifelong, constant pursuit of growth. Ephesians 4 describes it as this kind of minimum knowledge and maturity, this kind of growing up so that the saints aren't blown back and forth by one uh, doctrine or the next as it comes along. The second part of the, or Second Peter 3.18 it says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. The Bible doesn't talk in terms of an ideal level to be attained. For us, I think it has to be this constant seeking of God, this pursuing God, this striving to know God more, to be closer to him, to be in a relationship that's more and more intimate with him. It constantly presses us onward and upward into more and more discoveries of God. So with that in mind, I've titled the message today, Ever Maturing, and the subtitle, Recalling Our Defective Faith. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. We're going to be in Hebrews 5, starting in verse 11. But before we get into today's passage, I just want to preface the message uh, simply by saying a couple of things. First, our church has always been a place where you can belong before you believe, and I hope that it will always remain that way. And that means that we're going to love you, we're going to treat you with kindness and respect, we're going to invite you to be a part of what we're doing here, no matter 
where you stand in terms of belief. But now, with that said, if our church really believes what it believes, we want to do our best to shed light on what it looks like to be on a path of continual growth and pursuit of Jesus, to really be following after Jesus Christ. We want to talk about how we strive to be the best that we can possibly be, that God created us to be. We don't just want to check a box saying that, yes, this person believes in Jesus. We want to help each and every person that's putting their faith in Jesus really learn and grow and understand what it means to be in relationship with Jesus, to find that love, to find that purpose, that meaning, that connection that we can't find anywhere else with our creator who knows us intimately and deeply. So today we're going to be in Hebrews 5.11, and we're going to go through verse uh, or chapter 6, verse 3. If you don't have your Bibles, it's up on the screen. And I'm going to go ahead and read it. It says, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by the constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. In chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us move beyond elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. Let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you for this church and getting to be here in this place this morning. Thank you for what Jackie shared God, when we just pour out ourselves, and even as we did in worship, as we come to your word this morning, help us to be open to whatever it is that you might be speaking to each and every one of us, to not be distracted by anything else that might be going on in our lives or going on around here, that we would focus and set our hearts on what you have for us today, how you desire to draw us in and shape us and change us and Bring us closer and closer to you. We thank you, God, for your word and for your love this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So has anyone here ever had something you bought recalled before? Anyone? I don't know. Anyone like a defective product that just was terrible? Okay. Sometimes it's tires, right? Sometimes it's chicken. That's, I, I feel like, what I've heard about in the news. I don't know. Anyone have a crazy one? Like a real crazy one? Nothing? Just ordinary stuff? Okay. I took the liberty of looking up the last couple of weeks some, some very recent recalls. So here, here are a few of them. I just want to give you a, a, a quick few. Healing solutions recalled essential oils due to failure to meet child-resistant packaging requirements. Basically, kids could unscrew the cap and get poisoned. <laughs> and so next time, you know, Cindy from high school tries to sell you essential oils on Facebook, just probably pass on it. And I don't know why. Have any guys ever been, like, targeted messages on Facebook about that? It's only women. They're missing a whole market. So I don't know what's... <laughs> but anyways, besides the point, don't buy that specific one. Maybe they've corrected by now. Air rifles are re were recalled by this one company due to an unexpected 
discharge, <laughs> meaning you can like have it locked in place, but it's going to potentially discharge and, and fire off on you, so <laughs> not the best. Kawasaki USA recalled a recreational off-highway vehicle due to crash and injury hazards. These, th those are the ones that like are you ride on like dirt paths and like go 100 miles per hour. It's like not the best. I think it was like a steering mechanism or something. So <laughs> there's some crazy ones out there. I don't know how, but somehow this happens all the time. Companies fail to make parts correctly despite numerous employees working on them, and hopefully. Uh, really they go through all kinds of rounds of checks and somehow companies still put out defective products and they're purchased by people not knowing that they're putting their children's lives at risk. <laughs> if you have your ESV translation, if you're reading from the ESV translation, I read from the NIV today, you'll notice that at the headline of this passage it says, warning against apostasy. The word apostasy, it comes from the Greek word apostasis. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, meaning defection. So I don't know about you all, but there's been times in my life where I feel like my faith has been defective. And sometimes that can even be harmful to other people around us. It just feels like sometimes there's, maybe it just feels like there's just something not clicking with your faith. There's been times where I felt like my faith has become dull in the past. The full definition of apostasy is abandoning one's faith. Maybe you've thought about giving up, walking away, trying to find strength or hope somewhere else. I really believe that that making us feel dull and keeping us in a place where we repeatedly make those same mistakes over and over again to the point where our faith feels defective is a scheme of the devil. That we fight a, a, a fight not against flesh and blood, but there's spiritual warfare going on in our lives where there's an enemy that desires to pull us away from what God has for us. But God wants us to draw us in, to, to help us overcome that through him, through Jesus and his victory. So I believe for you this morning that God wants to free you from that and lead you into greater pursuit of him. In Hebrews 5 and 6, it puts out a recall on our defective faith. It's a warning against abandoning the faith. And it's followed by an encouragement to be ever maturing. Whenever something is recalled, just like those products I mentioned, companies usually offer something that's new, that's, that's uh, a new piece to it that's going to help it work correctly and function great, and it's going to be a better part. I think in the same way, God wants to continually bring new life to us and to inspire greater faith in you. But it takes the choice, a continual choice, to be pursuing God. So in this passage in Hebrews, we find that a faith committed to spiritual growth and maturing, it's not dependent on time, it's not dependent on knowledge, so much as it is on wise choices that lead us into living in a state of continually discerning and choosing good. Spiritual maturity is produced by acting on what you believe. It's stepping out on, on it, on, on our faith, on what we believe, or on the truths that we know, putting it into practice. That's what develops us and sets us on a path to be ever maturing. 
I read something recently about a principal in a high school who had this administrative post to fill. And he promoted one of the teachers who was there 10 years. He had 10 years teaching experience on the job. And when the announcement was made, there was this other teacher who had 25 years of experience who came to the principal and was terribly upset. And she said, why did you put the teacher, that teacher, in this position? He only has 10 years experience, and I have 25 years experience. Yet you passed me over in favor of him. And the principal said, I'm sorry, you're wrong. You haven't had 25 years of experience. You've had one year's experience 25 times. So it's that idea that we can go through our lives, be Christians for 25 years, for 10 years, for a long time, but never be maturing because we're staying in that same place over and over again. That's exactly the situation with these Hebrew Christians. They have been going through the same experience again and again all these years in their Christian life, but never, grow, never really had grown. Instead of marching forward, they simply were marking time. To give you a little context into Hebrews in general, Hebrews is a book that's written to people who have been committed, like I said, to being people of faith for a long time. They were Jews who became Christians. The book is filled with warnings not to abandon faith in Jesus, just like the one we read. It's all about how Jesus, he's superior to anything and any, anyone else, and he's worthy of their trust and devotion. The book opens with this. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. In other words, Jesus is superior to any other Ways of, that God had revealed himself in the past. Jesus is God incarnate. He is the picture of, God, of the invisible God. This specific passage lands in a section where the writer is explaining to his readers that Jesus is superior to the priests and Melchizedek, who was a priest back in the time of Abraham. So the priests in that time, their role was uh, to represent Israel before God, right? So in the temple, there was the Holy of Holies. There was a curtain that separated the outside outer court from the Holy of Holies, where God, the tabernacle, which represented God's presence, rested. And the priests were the only ones who were set apart to be able to go in there on behalf of the people before God. So in this section in Hebrews, the writer is telling them, Jesus is your priest. He goes before God for you. He mediates the way. He makes a way for you to be in relationship with God, and he is God himself. He's eternal. These other priests, they were defect. They had their own sins that they had to offer sacrifices for, but Jesus, he is your perfect priest. At that, that time, the priest that they knew, there was something more needed, so the author then argues that Jesus was that something more. He's warning them to not reject Jesus because to reject Jesus is to reject an eternal mediator between them and God. One of the reasons that I love this passage and why it really has caught my attention for a long time, I've always wanted to preach on it so for a few years now, and this is the first time I am. Uh, but one of the reasons I love it is because it seems to be so honest from the author. It's like we're kind of getting this Holy Spirit-inspired look into the heart and personality of this pastor who's writing a letter to a bunch of 
church people who have been believers for a long time, but they continue to screw things up. If you read it in the ESV, the translation's a little differently of that first part. He, it actually is translated uh, in the ESV in verse 11. The author says that they have become dull of hearing. <laughs> like, he, he's really getting their attention. He's like, you guys are just straight up dull of hearing. Like, you're not getting it. It might feel a little bit harsh and maybe even desperate, but for the author, he's filled the book with all kinds of warnings like that. They're meant to make you feel a little uncomfortable as you read it. They're not meant to make you be afraid, but they're there to show you that rejecting Jesus is really foolish because he is superior, because he's so awesome. These warnings all serve a larger purpose of the letter to show that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy for us. If you ask any pastor what the hardest part of ministry is, they would probably say the people. That's, that's J.D., my, my father-in-law's here. He's a pastor. He always says, uh, what is it? That ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. <laughs> but he has some really screwed up ones. You guys know. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but really, probably a majority of them would say that one of the hardest things about ministry is seeing people walk away from their faith. And even when they're surrounded by good leadership, good teaching, that happens. People walk away, and that's really hard to see. And not a single one of us, I think, is an exception to that. We can all be surrounded by good leadership, and hopefully you find it here. Good teaching, hopefully you find it here. But all of us are prone to find ourselves in that place of dullness, of feeling like our faith is just kind of defective, like we want to maybe walk away, we want to maybe abandon it. So the church can for sure help in the same way that the gym can help you get fit, a good friend can help you get through a tough time, but you are responsible for getting in shape when it comes down to it. And you're responsible for getting better. And even in your personal and spiritual growth, that's the case. You have to make a choice that I'm going to receive these teachings, but I'm also going to live them out. I'm going to be pursuing God in my life, and that might mean that I face some things in my life where I feel convicted because it's not of God, because God's trying to, really what that is, is God's trying to bring you into a, a better place, a place where he created and designed you to be. And sometimes that's the hardest thing because we're so comfortable where we are. But God wants us to really step into new levels of, of favor and blessing when we do that because we're living out his plans and his purpose and we're walking with him. So the author articulates the slowness of the learning of his readers with the words, nothroi uh, tais okois, that was that's the Greek. In the ancient world, world, the first of these words is nothrois, meaning sluggish, dull, dimwit, negligent, lazy. It was used in extra-biblical literature of a slave with ears stopped up by laziness who couldn't instantly obey the call of their master because of that. In athletics, the word could be used to describe a competitor who was out of shape, who was lazy or sluggish. It's a word that connotes a culpable negligence or a sluggishness in some aspect of, of life. So it's clear and obvious sign of a faith that's dying and not growing is one that really comes to this state of sluggishness or dullness. 
In other words, in order to keep our faith ever maturing, we have to be aware of that state becoming present in our lives and choose to fight against it. A lot of times when we find ourselves in that state, we want to do nothing but just stay and wallow in that state. But what are some things that we can do to fight against it? Here are just a few suggestions that I put down. Off. Reach out to someone, whether it's myself, a friend, or a professional therapist or counselor. Talk to them about how you're feeling. Run your schedule and don't let it run you. You have to protect yourself from burnout. Do devotions with someone else. If you struggle with getting into the word of God, ask someone what they are reading, and if you can join in with them in that, maybe meet with them in person or call them on the phone to talk about it or text with them to talk about it, whatever you're reading, but invite someone else into that feeling. Don't be in it alone because when we're in it alone, we're not going to have someone keeping us accountable to make the change or to put in the greater effort that sometimes it takes to really press through. And of, of course, pray about it. Ask God. Be honest and open about how you're feeling. The psalmist, David, did that all the time in the Psalms. So if you're feeling this way, those will start to help you move from a state of dullness to a state of discernment and spiritual strength in your life. So let's be ever maturing in our faith. In order to be ever maturing in our faith, we have to choose to fight that feeling of sluggishness. The passage then goes on to say in verse 12, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word over, all over again. So it wasn't that these were unique people who hold unique roles of teaching. Instead, they ought to be teachers in the sense that all Christians should be teachers. There's an important sense which every Christian must be a teacher because we can all really help disciple other people. We can share what we know, what we've experienced in our relationship with God, what we've learned along the way with someone else. It's been said before that we only really master something if we have effectively taught it to someone else. So teaching is the final step to learning. There's a, another sign of maturing faith is when someone uh, who shares what God is doing in their lives, when, uh, that's a sign of maturing faith, when someone is able to share what God is doing in their lives, when they're able to really teach other people what God's speaking to them, what God's done in their lives. So I believe in this room that you might have not thought of yourself before as a teacher, but that we are all here teachers. Some of you ought to be teachers right now, but you've chosen a different way. But I think when it comes down to it, we're called to teach in all kinds of different ways. You're called to teach by making a stand for injustice. You're called to teach by loving people with a love that goes beyond your own and comes from God alone. You're called to teach by using your gifts that God has given you to bring him glory. You're called to teach in all kinds of different ways, and it's the natural byproduct of a maturing faith. So maturity, I think, also looks like humility. Because I think learning happens best if you are a teacher when you're not so caught up in your own skill level or so focused on yourself, but you're able to actually 
get down on someone else's level. Be focused on what they're doing and, and not forget to slow down and give them step-by-step -step instructions. Think about, like any pro, if, if, if we were to, I'll just say it in an upset game, if we were to watch Tom Brady, if you're a quarterback and you're trying to watch Tom Brady do his thing, you're not going to really learn that much if you just see him be perfect Tom Brady on the field. Like, if he broke down his mechanics, though, you would learn something. And that, in our lives, in all other area of our, areas of our lives, takes some humility to be able to not be so focused on ourselves and what we're doing, but to look outside of ourselves and to say, who can I bring along with me? Who can I raise up? Who can I empower? I think that's a real sign of spiritual maturity. So we ought to be teachers, but we're not. That's what he's saying in Hebrews. But I believe that all of us can be on that path to being teachers, to sharing with others what God's given us. So in this passage, the author mentions also the elementary truths or teachings twice. At the end of that verse there, it said it, and then it says it again in, later in chapter 6. And at these two places where we see it, they seem to contradict each other. Here he's saying that they need someone to teach them these elementary truths of God's word over again. And then in six, chapter 6, verse 1, he says that they need to move beyond elementary teaching. So which is it? Am I going to learn these again, or am I supposed to move on? And it's most of the time when that's the case in the Bible, it's not, you know, that we're right, that it's a contradiction. It's the author actually has a purpose behind it. He's trying to explain something that might be a little confusing to us. But if we break it down, the gist of the passage, I think, is to stop reworking the basic preliminary Old Testament foundational realities of Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. Because these are Jews. These are Jews who became Christians. So they would have been used to the Old Testament uh, rituals and ways that were pointing to the Messiah coming. So they probably would have been going back and re-looking at those things like, okay, what do we need? How, how do we need to incorporate that? And that's why he uses all of Hebrews to show them the supremacy of Christ to all those things. So in, in this what we need to do instead is stand on them and press into the realities of the gospel in such a way that you become mature, discerning Christians who grow in the solid food of the whole counsel of God. So in other words, the author is encouraging them to center their faith, not on their own strength and own wisdom with trying to practice the ways of earning salvation, but on Jesus's love and sacrifice. Our salvation is by grace through faith alone. And when we make that the center, that's the right foundation. It's a gift that's freely given. We're all sinners. We all mess up. Yet God, he extends his perfect love to us, his forgiveness, his grace to us. So as we respond in faith to that, our love and hope are deepened. And it's our natural response to want to put our trust in him, to uh, have our desires be shaped and changed into ones where uh, we might not always get things right, but we know that we stand in Christ's righteousness. So as we respond in faith to that, our love and hope deepen in him, and our desire isn't as much to get things right for the sake of looking good as it is to choose righteousness so that we are drawing closer and closer to the love of God that fulfills us unlike anything else. That's what the gospel is that we can't achieve it in our own might through 
past rituals or things, that it comes by grace through faith alone. So, leave behind any tendencies of trying to earn that salvation that are causing you probably to stumble, probably to look at yourself and be like, well, I don't measure up, like I can't be that good. Because when it comes down to it, we're not that good. Jesus is. So we need to invite Jesus in. That's the foundation that he says to learn again, that your righteousness is in Jesus. He's the supreme one. He's your mediator. He's your high priest. He's your ultimate sacrifice. He died on the cross for your sins so that you could be in relationship with God. So once you establish that, once you understand that, everything else on top of that is just the path to maturing more and more and ever maturing. And then he goes on in verse 14, he says, But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So if you want to be mature and really understand some of the more solid teachings of the Bible, the more lofty things maybe, then the rich, nutritional, precious milk of God's promises must transform your moral senses, your spiritual mind, so that you can really discern between good and evil. To put it another way, getting ready to feast on all that God's word has for us is not first an intellectual challenge, it's first a moral challenge. The pathway to maturity and to solid biblical food is not becoming an intelligent person. It's not by really, like I said, just going through the motions year after year. It's by becoming an obedient person. What you do with alcohol, what you do with sex and money and leisure and food and computers and the way that you treat other people, it has more to do with your capacity for solid food than what books you might read or what kind of position you might hold or how long you've been a Christian. Of course, studying the Bible is important, but someone without a degree can be more spiritually mature than someone with a degree because of the choices that they make in their lives. To be maturing spiritually, to ever be ever maturing, we have to be in a spiritual state or condition where we possess trained faculties to really enable ourselves to discern what's good and what's evil, to, to come to the choices in our lives and know this is the way that God wants for me to take. This is the path to righteousness. And sometimes that path is the more difficult path. More often it is. But to be able to know it and act on it, God will bless you for it. If you think about babies, right, that's, that's what we're talking about here in this passage, milk versus meat and substance. Babies want to put anything and everything in their mouths, right? <laughs> they don't care what it is or if it's a ha choking hazard, they will put it in their mouths. I don't even, I don't even know. Asher's put all kinds of stuff like, like coins are, aren't even like the dirtiest or grossest thing. It's like, <laughs> I don't even know. There's been some crazy stuff, but they haven't learned yet what's good and what's bad to put in their mouths because they lack discernment. They just don't know any better. They don't know what's good and what's not good. And I think it's that way with, with us when we're, when we're still kind of stuck in that mindset that we can be like babies and, and not really discerning as, as we, maybe you feel that way when you were first became a Christian. You're, you're not really all that sure what's, what's right and wrong, but maybe God 
God puts in us the Holy Spirit, and he gives us conviction by the Holy Spirit to lead us in the way that's of him. So all of us have that as believers. We have that ability to discern, and that only grows more and more as we make those choices to follow him, as we don't give in to that dullness, as we keep pursuing him. The closer we get to God, the more we'll know this is what I need to do, even in the the non-essential things in life. You'll have greater convictions about things that maybe it's okay for one person to do, but for you, God's calling you to something even greater. He's calling you to maybe with abstain from something or withdraw from something because he wants you to do something else that's going to lead you closer to him. So choices, they don't define us, but they do develop us. I think as a person that puts your faith in Jesus, you're defined by his righteousness. You're forgiven and free. You're his redeemed child. As a heavenly father, he provides all that we need. The most important being new life in him. But when a baby develops, eating gets messy sometimes, right? I have a picture of Asher there, yeah. But like, there's so much joy in it. I had such a hard time because I'm like, I don't want it to be messy. Like, don't, I'm just like wiping his mouth. But that's him having blueberries for the first time. Like, there's so much joy in that. They go from milk, which uh, to be honest, I have tasted it. Not great. <laughs> I had to try. Um, it's normal. Trust me, it's normal if you don't have kids, I think. Um, but <laughs> he's just having a blast eating blueberries. And then the picture on the other side's uh, first time at Shake Shack, which he had the time of his life doing that. But there's this joy to be discovered when you move from milk to solid foods. It's like this whole new excitement, this whole new world. And suddenly you, you, you know you have this kind of discernment of sorts of like, I don't want just milk anymore. I want some like other stuff. And then you get to like chocolate and ice cream and it's, it's all over. Um, but it, it ought to be that way in our faith as we grow and we mature, that we should be good with milk. Like, milk's important, you know? Like, I didn't grow up in a family where milk was, like, every meal, but I had friends down the street, the tanners, like, nonstop milk, and they were beasts, and then, so I, like, trust it. It's important. But food, solid foods, when you try all kinds of different foods, it opens up a whole new world. It should be that way with our faith, that as we get the basics down, as we get that gospel truth down, and we center ourselves on that, then God starts to show us all kinds of things that ways he wants to use us or, or people that he wants us to, to love and, and, and to things that he wants us to do for his glory. Then when we get into all kinds of new worlds, as we take in these teachings, as we learn more and more about who he is, that's a whole new experience, a whole new world for us. God's infinite. God's divine and infinite so far beyond what we can even comprehend. So as we grow in our relationship with God, we ought to be learning and knowing more and more of him, but that only comes with time spent with him. And that's what the maturing life looks like. It looks like a t- continual pursuit of him into discovering those things, into him giving us a, a greater and greater picture of who he is. And it's like when that happens, we don't want those other things that try and pull us away, try and distract us, try and dull our faith or, or make us want to walk away from our faith. So it's a pretty awesome contrast. 
And it's a contrast that's made in other parts of the Bible, too. In, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3.1, Paul, he tells the Corinthian Christians that they claim to be spiritual, but they can't be treated as spiritual because they were still partaking in wild parties that uh, he called them carnal. But he's telling them in, the, in that passage that they need to be treated as spiritual infants, that they need to get back to the milk of elementary Christian ethics. Right before this verse, Paul says that there is further wisdom to be imparted to those who have ta- attained spiritual maturity. So maybe you can assess where you're at. What does God need you to, where does he need you to plant yourself? Get that basic gospel truth down, most importantly, above all. And then from there, strive for continual, ever-growing. As I was uh, preparing for this message, I read an article from uh, this pastor and author, Kerry Newoff, where he gives a few different marks of uh, different kinds of maturity in the church today, what he thinks could be what we aim towards. He says that a mature Christian should have a passion for application, a humility, a servant's heart, a love for the unchurched people, and a deep investment in the kingdom of God. So number one, a passion for application. Biblical knowledge is ultimately designed for application, for us to live out. The kind of maturity that I think would honor God the most deeply is knowledge applied in love. Our lives should look different. Our marriages should look different. Our parenting should look different. Our love for our neighbors and our community should be different. Our confession and our repentance should be deep and authentic. Our transparency should be authentic. And we should be radically committed to living out our faith. And number two, humility. I already kind of talked about it, but true Christian maturity has always been marked by humility. Jesus set that example. Number three, a servant's heart. And Amber preached on this last week, so I don't have to go into it too much. You can go watch that. But a true maturity comes in many things, including faith. When your quest becomes about others and not just yourself, that's what maturity looks like in the Christian faith. Mature Christians live for Christ and live for others. Number four, a love for unchurched people. If you consider, uh, just think about the Apostle Paul. He's probably what we would consider one of the most mature Christians, right? He was obsessed with unchurched people. He was a missionary. He went around making sure that unchurched people were hearing this gospel message. Eventually, it even got him killed. (laughs) He went through prison, all kinds of things, because he believed so strongly in loving unchurched people. So real maturity is not a life lived in pursuit of self. It's a life lived pursuing others and drawing in what, what, that one sheep even, that one stray sheep, the one person who's, who's lost, who's out on their own, or just people in your lives that you interact with every day, sharing with them the love of Christ. And number five, a deep investment in the kingdom of God. 
One of the marks of mature faith is a deep investment. Sometimes I wonder if you've, you know, we can, we can look and see where do we invest? Where do we, money's just one way, time's another way. Where do we put our time and money? Is it going to the bettering of the kingdom of God and to seeing people find hope and, and healing and love in, in Jesus Christ? So I'd like to invite Jackie up uh, in the worship team for a time of response this morning. And if you continue reading on in Hebrews chapter 6, he doesn't just kind of give this warning that's like, you guys are dull, done. <laughs> like, I'm done with you. That's not what it is. He doesn't end it there. He ends it with the hope of the gospel. There's an encouragement that follows it. And he acknowledges that the Christians, the, the Hebrew Christians at this time were doing some of those, kind of some of those things that I listed there. He says that God sees the work and the love that they have and how they've helped other people. He says in verse 11, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that you hope, so that what, what you hope for may be realized. He wants them to be diligent in their faith, to be diligent in loving other people, to be diligent in the work that they're doing, even though they might feel like, oh man, I'm, I'm just growing weary. I'm just not sure about this faith anymore. He wants to remind them and bring them back to the gospel that Jesus loves them, that there's so much joy in, in living life with Jesus. And he says that, what you hope for. I want what you hope for to be realized. We all have hopes in our lives to, to be doing something that makes a difference, to be loved and to be loving. He wants that hope to be realized, to be come to, to life in their lives. God knows that you have desires on your heart. He knows that you have things that you want to see come to pass. He created us and he intimately knows our hearts and what we desire. He wants for our desires to get in line with his and for those things to come to life in our lives. He then closes by pointing them again to Jesus. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. So he ends it by reminding them, Jesus, He's here for you. Your priests were here for you, but Jesus, he's eternally here for you. You might feel like this right now, but this is a moment in earth where you have this feeling. Don't let it rob you of your eternity. And your eternity can start now. Your eternity is here as you get on that path to be ever maturing, to be ever growing, to be drawing in closer and closer to God. That's our aim. That's what spiritual maturity ultimately needs to look like when it comes down to it. That I choose righteousness, that I discern, I live in a state of discernment, of always seeking what's good and what's, what's the way of God that he wants me to take and what's not. And eventually that becomes more and more natural. That just becomes instinct almost. And of course, things will try and pull us away because like I said, there is spiritual warfare, there's an enemy. But God invites us in. 
So I just want us all to close our eyes as we get ready to close out today. And Jackie's going to be singing a song for us. But I don't want to miss an opportunity to give us a chance to respond. As I was praying through this and preparing this message, I got a sense that there was someone or people who were considering walking away from their faith. It doesn't necessarily mean withdrawing from church. You could be coming to church week after week and still be considering walking away from faith. It can look like moving from a genuine relationship to God to an indifference about your relationship with God. You could be going through the motions of Christianity that you've known, that you've learned, that you've practiced just because it's what you've been around, but never truly having an authentic, genuine faith and relationship that's pursuing God all the more. And if that's you, if you feel like, man, I've thought about abandoning my faith, I've been in a place of dullness, would you just lift a hand? I won't call you up here or anything. I just want to know if we're praying for anyone in this room. No one's looking around. down to it. God knows our hearts. He knows what we're going through. He loves you and he wants you to enter into a season of strength. He wants you to enter into a season of growth that's anchored in the hope of his promise and that makes a way for us to be in relationship with our creator. So I'm going to let Jackie lead us in a song. Would you stand with us as we sing?